Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, as Jeff mentioned, we'll be wrapping up our fully online liturgy next Sunday and before we take a pause. And as we've been online this past uh, year and, and more, uh, we're grateful that technology has allowed us to continue having diverse voices in our homilies, uh, including those outside of Austin and even those around the world. Uh, and personally, I'm thankful for our dear friend and theologian, James Allison, and just for his presence and voice with our community, especially during this past year and a half. And so we're delighted that he's joining us again from Spain, and we'll be opening the scriptures with us this morning. So welcome back, James. Thank you very much indeed. It's lovely to be back. Hello, Vox Venier. Lovely to be with you again. And uh, first of all, happy Independence Day. Um, I hope that you will all be having suitable uh, celebrations. And of course, you have uh, the voice of the vengeful Brit uh, here to, to castigate you for your wickedness in running away. Though actually, I'm delighted and warmly congratulate you on your independence and I'm delighted that you kind of got it back again after January the, the, the 21st of this year and hope that you continue being a beacon and a light to the rest of us. Anyhow, let's to the gospel. The hidden God, Mark 6. We heard this passage read today, and it's um, the direct continuation of last Sunday's gospel. You remember that in last Sunday's gospel, Jesus uh, cured two women. One woman who had been 12 years with a flux of blood, and another who was 12 years old, and was on the point of uh, becoming menstrual, and so uh, becoming marriageable. In both cases, it was the way in which the uh, the bride of Israel was making himself present to the daughter of Zion. But anyhow, at the end of last Sunday's gospel, Jesus tells the girl's parents to give her something to eat and goes off. And this is the verse immediately following that. He left that place, Jesus left that place, and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. Interestingly, it doesn't say doesn't say he came to Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was his hometown, and Mark refers to it as such uh, in the first chapter of his gospel. But here, the point is not so much that he came to the place Nazareth, but that he came to his hometown. What is it like to be at home? And in fact, that's what we're going to be looking at today. What is it like having Jesus coming home to us in our home? And how difficult that can be. How strange and mysterious is the presence of Jesus when we are at home. And of course, many of you are people who are not native Austinians, but have moved to Austin from other places. So your new home uh, is Austin. And what is it like finding Jesus present in your new home? And what is it like for those for whom it's always been home? Let's watch what's going on here. His disciples followed him. Now remember, there's already been an exchange concerning home and family with his disciples when Jesus's blood relatives have tried to um, come and, and drag him out from a meeting because they're worried that he's out of his mind. And Jesus quite smilingly says, but who are my sisters and brothers and mothers, those who here are my sisters and brothers and mothers who do the word of God. No, there's the disciples who followed him, 
are his sisters and brothers and mothers. <laughs> That's what we're talking here. They've come to watch him perform at home. And what's that going to look like? Hmm. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Now, this is the third and last time that Jesus teaches in the synagogue in Mark's Gospel. And on each of the previous two, uh, his visitation to the synagogue, which causes the Lord showing himself amongst his people in the place where the law of Moses is read, where the people of Israel, Abraham's children, are supposed to be being guided by Moses's word through the adventure of life. And the Lord has come to visit them. And in the first visitation on synagogue, He's recognized not by any of those present, except by somebody who has an unclean spirit who recognizes him and gets worked up and come amongst us, the Holy One of God. In other words, he recognizes him as the one who is in fact the presence of the Most High, the one who in the temple was in the holy place and no one could go in except the high priest uh, because the threat of unholiness Touching holiness was so great that the Lord's wrath might flare out. But here it is the Holy One who actually cleans the person of an unclean spirit and makes them clean. So God's ability to make pure, to make clean, to make holy is coming out. So that was his first synagogue intervention. The second synagogue intervention is when there's a man with a withered hand. And the uh, crowd is waiting to see whether he'll do something, particularly he'll do something naughty on a Sabbath. And Jesus demands that the man extends his hand. Um, and that is Jesus enacting the Lord, enacting Yahweh, telling Moses to extend his hand, which was how Moses was able to get the people across the Red Sea by extending his hand. Um, and he's putting the, the leaders of the synagogue on the spot. He's saying to them, are you Pharaoh, stopping letting my people go? Or are you saying, yes, let you go? In which case, if, the, if you are that, if you're choosing life rather than death, then you'll be glad that I've healed this man. Says, because it reminds you how the Lord with outstretched hand and mighty, with outstretched arm and mighty hand brought forth the people of Israel. In other words, Jesus is enacting the Lord of the Exodus. So what's going on in his third synagogue visit? You can always tell it's going to be an indication of the Lord. But this is one of the most mysterious of his visits to the synagogue, this last visit. Because it's at home. And it's interesting that the key words show that the people have got everything exactly wrong. They've got everything upside down. Uh, we're going to see this quite closely. So he begins to begins to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. Okay, what are they? there are two ways of being astounded. There's astounded as in, wow, this is wonderful, this is amazing. And there's astounded as in, what on earth is going on here? No doubt there are other forms of astounded as well. But uh, it doesn't say which of those two it is. We can say what we do know is that they were scandalized by him. You see that very last phrase on the screen at the moment, and they took offence at him. 
the Greek is escandalizonto, they were scandalized by him. They were caused to stumble uh, by him. We'll be looking at that, that's a key word. So this, astound, this being astounded is not a, a yippee kind of amazement, it's more a, ah, this is really weird kind of amazement. So they'd heard about him because the word concerning what he had been doing had gone all around Galilee, and Nazareth was part of Galilee. So they say, where did this man get all this? And this is the first hint of them getting something all wrong. Uh, the Greek word pothen is whence. Whence to this one all these things, literally. Whence to this one all these things. And of course, whence is the word that an admirer talks about God. Whence does all this come from? Who made all these things? Where do they come from? Why is there something rather than nothing? Whence? This is the God word. But they're concentrating on him uh, about whom they've concerned. They are scandalized by him. There is this mixture of admiration and rivalry. When you want to imitate someone, that's a good thing. But when you become rivalrous with them, that's a strange mixture of admiration and blockage so that you're in a relationship where you both admire and hate them and you see them all wrong because you're now jealous. You're tied to them, you're obsessed by them, they can do no good and yet somehow they're too good. That's one of the weird things about being scandalized. The relationship has gone wrong and you see the person completely the wrong way around. So they ask the whence question unaware that it is the Lord in their midst. And then they ask the next God question, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? Wisdom is God's creative power, the one who brings into being all things in an ordered way. If you like, the structured bringing into being of creation, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom in the Hebrew scriptures doesn't mean a particular sort of intelligence such that old people have. Oh, it was a wise old man, or she was a wise old woman. No, that's not what wisdom means at all. Wisdom is the feminine presence accompanying God that beautifully, delicately brings all things into being. That's what wisdom is about. It's understanding, placing everything so that it all gives off the glory of God and is as it should be. So in this case, Wisdom is actually in their midst. And then what deeds of power are being done by his hand? So that's the next word with relation to God. Power. Dynamis. Dynam. Dynamics. Don't forget the word dynamics. You will all remember the phrase of St. Paul, Jesus Christ crucified, the power of God and the wisdom of God. These are the same words here, the power of God and the wisdom of God. What's being, what they're saying is, where does he get this wisdom, meaning these words which come out from his mouth. What are the deeds of power? What about them? They're not being performed in, in, in his hometown, but they'd heard, that, heard about them. So they want to know more about this, but they're focused on him and they can't see him clearly because there's this mixture of admiration and rivalry. It's what called being scandalized by him. Is this not the carpenter, they say? Hmm, another key word here, mysterious word showing that we've got it exactly wrong. 
The word techdome does indeed mean carpenter, but it can also mean zero-sum labourer in a, uh, an economy like the economy of Palestine at that time. There were people who, because they weren't part of any company, weren't part of any property, were, if you like, the lowest in the economic scale as regards employability. And being a tectone, being a carpenter, would be like being a zero-hours labourer, meaning basically you're available for hire, but you've got no rights. So it, it can be a sign of, it could be a sign of saying, oh, he's got a professional, or it could be saying he's, he's so low on the employable scale that he's not really very important. But interestingly, the word tectone means much more than this, because it also means artificer or artisan in the positive sense that, for instance, Miriam, Moses's sister's son and grandson, were artificers. It was they who, in the desert, made the various things that went along with the tabernacle. Artificers, carpenters, artisans. That's the positive sense. In the negative sense, those who made idols, artisans, the makers of idols who will all be put to shame. Those are artisans. It's the same word. And the same word can mean the one who puts things together. In other words, it's one of the ways of referring to the work of the creator. So all of those words each of them can be interpreted either as recognizing what's really going on here, the whence this person has come, where they have come from, where the power comes from, where the wisdom comes from, what the one, the artificer who brings everything into being is actually like, or it can be all be reduced to some sort of insult, <laughs> depending on how our family dynamics work. So then he says, says he's a carpenter, the son of Miriam, and the brother of Jacob, and Joseph, and Judah, and Simeon. Okay, so that's from Miriam. If you were a son of Abraham, if you were part of the people of Israel, of course you would have heard of Miriam. Miriam, most important reference to Miriam was Miriam, Moses' sister. And Moses' sister famously had a hissy fit with Moses, and Aaron had a hissy fit as well, but Miriam got the worst of it. She got turned into a leper for a week. As part of her family runner, because she didn't recognize that God spoke principally and only to Moses. She thought God should speak to her and to Aaron as well. So family row, not recognizing the quality of the prophet in their midst. And we translate the words brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon, but of course they would have heard Jacob and Joseph and Judah and Simeon, another major family row in the Hebrew scriptures, part of the story of Abraham's descendants. Who were these? Well, Jacob was, his, was the dad, was Israel. Uh, Joseph was the one who got thrown out. Judah was the one who managed to get him sold rather than being killed. Simeon was the one who would have had him being killed rather than being sold. So this was a lovely family set up. Um, this is what it was like, part of being family life. So the idea is that if you live in a synagogue, you should have been aware that these named people uh, had a troublesome family history and that the presence of the prophet or the dreamer in their midst was going to look slightly different. But of course, these people are taking the words literally and only looking down on these sisters here with us. And they took offense at him. So they're scandalized by him. They're locked into 
at rivalry, unable to see the prophetic word. Let's have the next slide. Um, then Jesus said to them, Prophets are not without honour, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. And he's actually putting together two quotes from the prophet Jeremiah. Jeremiah, so we're talking about one of the great prophets. Uh, Jeremiah was from a town called Anathoth. His own relatives and the people in Anathoth thought he was a thoroughly bad thing, forbade him from prophesying and wanted to have him thrown out. Uh, therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the people of Anathoth who seek your life and say, you shall not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hand. And uh, then the Lord says, for even your kinsfolk and your own, your own family, even they have dealt treacherously with you. They're in full cry after you. Do not believe them, though they speak friendly words to you. In other words, that's part of what goes along with being the prophet, that the family is always going to be the most difficult place. But Jesus is quoting even more than Jeremiah to them. He's actually quoting Genesis 12, the very beginning of Abraham's call, when he was still called Abraham. The Lord calls to Abraham and said, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So Jesus only very slightly changes those words. Rather, Jesus says, not without honour, except in their hometown and among their own kin and in their own house. He translates the, the um, father's house to, to hometown. Um, but it's in Greek, the, the same patridi appears in both. So Jesus is reminding them, the synagogue, you're the, you're the sons of Abraham. All these family stories are your stories to show how the Lord comes and shows visions and brings himself to light. But the Lord your God is a hidden God. And here, the hidden God is the Lord who appears in Isaiah 45. Truly you are a God who hides himself. O God of Israel, the Saviour. The Saviour, all of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. The makers of idols, that's our word, tectone, our word carpenter. They're accusing him of being the carpenter. And he's saying that the hidden God, you're the one who, through your being scandalised, you're living with idols. You're unable to see. And he could do no deed of power there. That's very interesting. What's the deed of power? The deed of power is not simply a miracle, meaning doing something that's against the laws of nature. The deed of power is a sign. It's enabling it become clear that not only has something been done, but the something that has been done is a word of the Lord, something by which the Lord's identity is revealed. The, the deed of power is always a sign in the sense that it is a sign of the creator creating but he, he can do know that because they can't get the link between the sign and the name and the creating. Their vision has been narrowed down by being scandalized. They're clearly locked in with each other in blindness and jealousy. He could lay his hand on a few sick people. Presumably they were unimportant enough not to be so locked into the identity struggles of the people. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So they had been amazed in the bad sense. And here he is amazed, saddened really, 
He's come for the third and last time to the synagogue. He's come to our home turf, if you like. And he's saddened that even the stories that we're used to haven't enabled us to realize how our names, our modern names, like my name, James, which is Jacob, <laughs> uh, are themselves hints of stories that should make us aware of the prophet in our midst, that should enable us to see the hidden one of God actually reaching out in power and opening us up. He's amazed, saddened, and after this he moves on. He's going to have to start to move out and create a ministry team to take his word elsewhere, where people will be able to see his sign and understand the word that is coming with it, a word of power that is speaking to people and bringing them to life. So, is he visiting us? Are we able to work through the ways in which we are scandalized at each other? Are we going to be open to receive works of power? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.